This is Channel 253. In this episode of Crossing Division. If you're that afraid, you're in the wrong job. You're in the wrong job. You're in the wrong job. If, if you cannot interact with the community that you are supposed to be protecting and serving, you are in the wrong job. And if you've been doing this for 30 years and you believed that that circumstance was one that posed your life to be in danger, you're in the wrong job. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Hi, this is Evelyn Lopez. This week on Crossing Division, we are going to follow up on the Downtown on the Go Friday Forum that occurred today, February 26th, 2021. The Friday Forum today, the topic is, can street safety be anti-racist and how? So in our Crossing Division podcast, I'm going to be talking with Shannon McMinnamy. Shannon is an attorney with the Cedar Law Group, um, has long ties with Tacoma as she was former counsel for the Tacoma Public Schools. And Shannon is not only, uh, in my opinion, quite a renowned expert on constitutional law, but she and her law firm, in fact, are involved in a couple of cases um, that we'll talk about um, where they have taken on uh, police departments for police activities. So this is a perfect conversation to be having. Let me give you a little context, and then I'll have Shannon go ahead and introduce herself. The context is, look, why do we have rules? Why do we have laws? Um, The reason, really, is that one of the goals of government, one of the reasons that we come together in a society to form a government and pay taxes to support it is because government will provide for the common welfare. It's in our Constitution. So we need to ask ourselves again and again, is a policy that the government is putting forward, a regulation, a law, is it going to provide for the common welfare? And for whom? Who will benefit from this law? And at what cost? Who will be harmed? So we're going to talk about harm reduction, decisions and consequences. And let me tell you guys, this is going to be a two-parter because Shannon and I are going to get really into it. Part one, Rules, Risks, and Choices. Shannon, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Shannon McMinnamy. I am, as Evelyn I shared, an attorney at Cedar Law, which is an education and civil rights firm that represents students, families, and employees across the state of Washington, as well as uh, represents individuals who have been subject to police brutality while protesting police brutality. Uh, I also teach at the University of Washington Tacoma, where I teach uh, constitutional law classes to undergraduates, which I love. I am the former general counsel of the Tacoma School District and a former East Tacoma resident who misses the city of destiny greatly while I'm currently living primarily in eastern Washington during COVID doing uh, parent care. Excellent. So, Shannon, one of the reasons, and I I should tell you guys, um, Shannon and I talked about this uh, a number of weeks ago, the idea of trying to get at a couple of different concepts. One is um, elected leaders who are hesitant to comment on big issues that happen in the city, you know, that they're very uh, worried about the risks that commenting may create, and they're very reluctant then to make decisions and make choices. But as I started putting my notes together, I realized that I also want to talk about, um, do we need a law on something? We we have a tendency and a belief that laws are good. You know, whenever something happens, someone says, well, we, we need a new law. We need a new rule on that. We need something to regulate that behavior. And we pride ourselves on being a nation of laws. But while having laws does impose some order, it also has consequences and it turns a lot of human interactions into enforcement activity and criminal activity. And maybe that's not the best way that people should be interacting. So we're going to talk a little bit about 
rules and laws and interactions and whether these things should be or need to be rules and laws. Um, in particular, some things that happen is that a rule might be neutral on its face, which means like, let's say a speeding rule. Let's say the speed limit on I-5 between Tacoma and Olympia is 60 to 65 miles per hour. That is neutral on its face. It applies to everyone driving on that stretch of freeway. However, when the state patrol is enforcing that law, it may not do, do so in as neutral a manner. They may look for certain types of cars, certain types of drivers. And so you take a law that is supposed to apply to everyone equally, and through the enforcement, it becomes less equal. So I asked Shannon to sort of help me weigh in on this of when laws are not really fair. And we'll start by, I had my notes here that I think I'm going to immediately deviate from. Um, Fair. I appreciate that. Good. So Shannon, talk to me a little bit about um, laws that become discriminatory. And I'm particularly interested in the concepts of de jure and de facto discrimination and how that can come into play. It's like you're reading my mind because that was immediately where I was going to start with. So there is a difference in laws that the government imposes with the intention to engage in discrimination and laws that result in discrimination based on how they're applied or on general circumstances that impact how the reality works. And I still think the absolute two best contexts to talk about de jure and de facto uh, implications of laws is in the context of segregation. And I'm going to go with public school segregation and housing segregation. Uh, as we all know, there used to be explicit laws that required separate educational facilities for students based on color. And that was consistent with uh, the old Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision from the 1800s that identified that separate facilities were allowable so long as they were equal. And then Brown versus Board of Education came along and the court overturned Plessy and identified that separate is inherently unequal. And so a de jure discriminatory law is one that is intended by the way it was implemented by either legislators or if it's uh, executive order, the executive to discriminate and distinguish based on membership in certain classes, usually race, age, gender, here in Washington, sexual orientation, uh, things like that. And de facto laws and decisions are decisions that on their face don't appear to be intentionally uh, intending to discriminate, but result in discrimination. In the public school context, great examples relate to student assignment plans that are based on geography, where uh, access to schools is really determined by your zip code and where you live. And traditional housing uh, patterns ha and redlining you know, areas where individuals were not allowed to purchase homes because of their race or their religion or some other factor, segregated neighborhoods, and they remain segregated today. today. And so that's de facto uh, discrimination where just in practice, based on how the law is implemented or how the how things have been set up by society, discrimination happens as a result of the factual circumstances around the decision. So de jure is an intentional act to treat people differently as a matter of law, and de facto is when the law treats people differently as a matter of fact. Okay. And I think this concept is really important because you know, over the course of my lifetime, we've seen a lot of attempts to move away from the in 
intentionally discriminatory laws. So we may not have laws that say um, this person is not eligible to adopt a child because of their um, marital status or sexual orientation. But the de facto impacts are still readily with us. And I think we too often neglect those. And that's what you're often hearing about when people are talking about, um, you know, if we have a white supremacist system, if we have an essentially racist culture and environment, you are really not able to have fair laws, even if they look fair on their face. And you get particularly, I find, um, more people who, I will say, like me, so people who are older, whiter, you know, in a certain economic category will often look at crime issues or um, I would say disorderly conduct issues and say, well, those people should be held accountable because everyone is accountable for their actions. And they ignore either intentionally or I don't know why out of ignorance, the fact that the laws are not fairly distributed. They're not fairly enforced. They have a disproportionate impact on people depending on their race, their um, income, where they live, and many other factors. So the de facto discrimination I always find very interesting. So give me an example, Shannon, of something, and I have some on, in my notes here, so maybe I'll just start off one. Let's talk about a couple of examples of things that are intended to be neutral, but become non-neutral in reality. So I'll start with a law that requires drivers to have working taillights on their cars. So you've got to have working taillights. You've got to have kind of a lot of things on your car that work. But taillights seem to be a particular issue that causes a lot of people to get pulled over. So you're supposed to have working taillights on your car. If you don't have a working taillight, police can pull you over and begin sort of a police public interaction. What do we think about laws like that? So again, these are facially neutral laws, laws that in theory apply to everyone and apply to everyone the same. However, where the question comes is, are they being enforced in a manner that is consistent, fair, and non-discriminatory, and particularly non-discriminatory non-discriminatory based on membership in, again, a protected class. So this one tends to come up a lot in the context of pretext for making, for law enforcement making a stop of an individual. So you had to to kind of step back towards criminal law, normally law enforcement needs to have a warrant and probable cause in order to be able to inhibit somebody's movements, you know, stop you from what you're doing and keep you in one place and then to search things that you may own. And there are times when law enforcement is able to stop you because of the existence of a potential infraction and then it escalates into something more. And that's a Oftentimes what we see with minor traffic laws, where somebody gets pulled over for a broken taillight, and then it turns out that becomes the incident that starts a longer, more complicated series of events that could and has at times resulted in um, fatal shootings by law enforcement officers, typically of individuals who are not white. I will tell you that you are far more likely to not get pulled over for having a burnt out taillight if you're driving a new car, a new car that's an expensive car. If you are in a nice, in what is perceived to be a nice neighborhood, if you are white, if you are a white woman, if you have children in the car, things like that are circumstances where you're either not going to get pulled over or if you get pulled over, you're going to get a warning. Whereas somebody who is, a man or who is, who is uh, gender non-traditionally non-binary in gender presentation or presenting gender in a way that is not something that a law enforcement officer is expecting or used to and or are of any other minority or non-dominant non-white male 
non-cis white male persuasion, you might find yourself facing a citation and then it escalating into a full-on criminal action. And so that's one where where you live, what kind of car you drive, where you go are all things that play into whether or not that law is going to be enforced against you in the same way. Mm-hmm. Well, we can see it, it, it. There are a couple of different possibilities here that are problematic. One is the horrible situation where you are pulled over and it escalates into a violent interaction with the police and the driver is shot and killed. We have had those situations occur in this country. But even if that doesn't happen, the person who gets pulled over, maybe they get a citation. So if you get a citation, money is going to be owed. If you cannot pay that citation, more money will accumulate. Eventually, when you can't pay those fees, a warrant may be issued for your arrest. If you do not show up, you may be you know, subject to being taken into custody. If you're taken into custody, you may lose your housing. If you can't pay your rent, you may lose your children. If you have children that, you know, you don't have a place to, you know, put with a family member or something. I mean, the the harms to the person escalate again and again and again. And if you look back at, but why? But why should driving without a tail light have such severe consequences? I can't help but wonder, is it worth having a law that you need to have working taillights on your car? Is this really a matter for criminal enforcement? Absolutely. That's, and then, of course, that gets into the, the very important question of socio, socioeconomic impact of facially neutral laws and ability to pay fines, fees, things like that, resulting in sometimes jail. And how, uh, again, if you're a person who's in an older car who may not be able to afford to have your taillight replaced, you are in a different set of circumstances than somebody who is of a higher socioeconomic status who is able to easily take care of that or to just view the fine as no big deal and move on. Mm-hmm. So I think this is the type of a conversation that I would like to see our elected leaders get into. And then it's always asking, well, not just is that a good rule or a good rule, but why do we have it? What is the harm that is intended to be prevented here? Certainly people driving without taillights, that could be a traffic issue that could lead to some traffic safety concerns. But is that really balanced by the potential for extremely negative consequences, depending on who might get pulled over because of the context and the environment in which we live. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's where, again, is the value of the law worth it against the negative consequence, right? Like, That's the ultimate question, I think, that comes down to every law we have is the overall societal value of having this law in place worth the potential unintended consequences of regulating this particular issue. And that's really the that's the non-legal question. That's the societal, what kind of society do we want to be question. And then the legal question is, if we choose to have the law how do we ensure that that law is applied equitably and fairly and isn't used as a pretext to discriminate against people based on their membership in protected classes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a couple of other examples I wanted to get into, but let's take this as an opportunity since we're talking about um, conduct that has been determined to be um, potentially criminal or inappropriate conduct. and segue into the cases that you are handling uh, involving uh, police and protesters at, you know, I'll say anti-police rallies, although I think that's a rather simplistic take on it. Tell me about the cases that you have and sort of where they're at and what they're about. 
Yes. So along with uh, another law firm, the Strickmeyer Law Firm here in Seattle, our firm is representing a group of about 60 uh, individuals who participated in protests starting at the end of May last year after the death of George Floyd. And these include individuals who are continuing to protest up through today. Uh, and it is a range of folks from people who went one time to people who are protesting pretty continuously. Uh, we are one of the uh, plaintiffs in the suit uh, is the estate of Summer Taylor, uh, who was the individual who was killed on I-5. Uh, she, uh, they were hit by a motorist who went up a on-ramp uh, after the law enforcement had closed off the on-ramp and was giving uh, times to protesters as to when they thought they would be safe on the freeway. And so there's a there's a real question there is if this neutral, you know, if the act of um, blocking off the freeways, assuring protesters that it would be a safe time to be on the freeway, uh, and then a, a resulting death from a failure to block off an access is a viable claim against the city of Seattle. Uh, the city tried to have that portion of the case dismissed, and that was denied last uh, last week. We represent a number of individuals who uh, suffered injury as a result of their participation in protests. Uh, obviously, for those who are people of color uh, and appear to have been targeted more harshly because of their membership in protected class status, whether it's just race, but also um, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, things like that. There's uh, claims being raised under the Washington law against discrimination. And we are raising uh, a, a claim that is asking the courts to extend Washington's law against discrimination to protect those who take action based upon objecting to the discrimination of others based upon membership in protect in pro, membership in protected classes. So, for example, our protesters who are injured or or arrested while engaging in protests of how BIPOC individuals are treated by law enforcement themselves protected under the Washington law against discrimination for their advocacy on behalf of individuals who are in protected classes being subject to different treatment. And so the city tried to have that dismissed and, I and they tried to assert that there was no cause of action to bring uh, in Washington. And that was actually rejected last week as well. So it's an opportunity to see where the courts in Washington are going to go on extending the Washington law against discrimination to those who are in concert with and advocating for individuals who are in protected classes who may not be members of protected classes themselves. And so the Washington um, law against discrimination is intended to be construed fairly broadly. It's been Ended pretty liberally by the Washington Supreme Court to make determinations that, for example, uh, somebody who is being sexually harassed at group health, but isn't a group health employee and is instead a group health uh, patron, can seek protection under the Washington law against discrimination, even though they're not an employee of the entity at issue. So it's a, it's a it's a new legal theory or that we are pursuing. And so far, the uh, King County Superior Court refused the city's efforts to reject that as a theory. So I'm excited to see how that plays out. And so that, that really raises the question of, can we get Washington's non-discrimination law to apply to people who work in concert to protect others from discrimination, as opposed to just the people who are being subject to discrimination, which would be a real way to proactively try and get agencies and entities to not engage in discriminatory conduct in the first place. I think the irony of these cases is we're representing individuals who suffered police brutality while protesting police brutality. And there certainly has to be a mechanism for addressing that conduct by law enforcement 
particularly when it plays out so differently depending on your political viewpoint and what it is that you're protesting, right? Like how many times did we see the Proud Boys who are a uh, self-proclaimed drinking and fighting far-right supremacist leaning group of individuals who are you know pretty prominent on on the national scene as well as locally on January 6th how is it that they can have large events and protests and uh, rallies in front of city hall and be treated exceptionally well by law enforcement escorted in and out whereas those individuals who engage in protests against police brutality are subject to police brutality themselves. And things like um, Cal Anderson Park, which was in theory closed for most of the summer. There was a big anti-masker event where I believe there was a, a religious group and, and pretty, again, right-wing anti-mask COVID is a conspiracy leaning group that was allowed to have a large scale event in Cal Anderson Park and the Seattle Police Department did nothing about it. And then I think back in October, there were a group of um, individuals playing soccer in Cal Anderson Park who were you know, left leaning anti-fascist folks who were then arrested and beaten for playing soccer in Cal Anderson Park just because it was presumed that they were members of Antifa, whatever Antifa is, but essentially they were arrested, subject to police brutality, and uh, pretty pretty heavy-handed police tactics for playing soccer. So if Cal Anderson Park is closed, how come it's closed for some groups and not others? And how is it that a few hours later, other people who were uh, dressed differently and not clearly part of any uh, particular viewpoint group were walking dogs and playing soccer in the park as well? So that's, that's, a, that's kind of the framework that I think of when we talk about how laws and rules can be used in a way where on their face they should apply to everybody, but they really end up getting applied differently. And then it really becomes a question of how are we overseeing our law enforcement, our city, our county, our state to make sure that our actors carrying out law enforcement and rule enforcement uh, jobs are doing so in a way that represents the intention behind the laws that were passed in the first place. Yeah. You know, so if the, if the city is closing the park for general safety and, and well-being for everybody, they should be closing the park for everybody and not responding inconsistently based on who the groups are. Mm -hmm. So you've got a couple of different threads going through there. I mean, one, I think it's very interesting to have this idea that um, allies or people who are at a protest to assist or stand for or, um, you know, protest on behalf of members who are a in a protected class should have the same protections under the law against discrimination as individuals who are in that class. I mean, that um, that is a really uh, interesting theory, and I think that'll be really exciting to see how that plays out. But it, it makes sense to me that if you really want to have effective laws against discrimination, they need to cover more than just the individuals who are in the protected class. I mean, otherwise right. you, you, you really um, take away the speech and protest power of the group because uh, people who are protected may not always be able on their own to fully express all of their issues. I mean, it makes sense to me. So Good, good work on that. We'll be very interested to see how that goes. But uh, you know, it's very exciting yeah, to ahead. get past the initial motion to dismiss phase and to really be pushing the, this idea. And there are some cases out there where the court has found, you know, like spouses of individuals subject to discrimination uh, could be protected under the Washington law against discrimination. So it is really important to think about how can we use our existing laws to protect people, not just how existing laws can be used to harm people, because it goes both ways, right? There's, there's the idea of we want this law to not harm people, but also how can we 
maximize our non-discrimination laws to protect people. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things you also mentioned was uh, the, the idea of, you know, it's kind of the flip of the you know neutral on its face. It's sort of like, you know, if you are going to have a rule or a law that says that peaceful protests are allowed, but as soon as this happens or that happens, then enforcement mechanisms need to come into play to shut down the protest. If you do have that law, and I think there's a, a good discussion to be had about whether that is something that should be the law. I mean, you certainly, you don't want everything to, to you know, end up in chaos, but at the same time, a lot of the um, videos that we saw over the course of the summer seem to show that um, the violence really became more problematic when the police came into the protests and before the police entered the protest, was it was a much calmer situation. But if you do have laws that say, the police will come in and engage in enforcement activity in a protest situation, then your de jure rule has to be, and your de facto has to be, that it's evenly applied to all protests and all individuals engaged in that activity. And it sounds like in your case, there's a difference. I hope so. And I hope that we continue to proceed forward on it because I really do think that it is important to ensure that folks are protected for expressing their viewpoints, not just under the First Amendment, but under Washington's law against discrimination, which identifies that we should all be free from discrimination in public places and places of public accommodation. Mm-hmm. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to talk about the Tacoma Police Department, um, recent situations with the officer who ran over bystanders on the street, uh, and then talk a little bit about how we need to have our elected leaders engaging in this discussion with us. Hello, this is Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Citizen Tacoma, and a proud Alaska Airlines frequent flyer. Everything in our day-to-day life seems to involve more hassle these days. So it feels good that Alaska Airlines is making something easier. Alaska has made air travel virtually touch-free. Here's the rundown. When you check your bags at the airport, you won't have to touch the kiosk to print your bag tags. They'll print when you scan your boarding passes, or you can even print them from home. When you board your flight, they can scan your boarding pass from as much as six feet away. Now, the lawyers want me to say that this might not work if the lighting in the terminal is low or if the print quality of your boarding pass isn't great. But still, kudos to Alaska for trying to keep physical distancing at every point of the trip. And don't forget, you can pre-order your meal from your phone or from your computer. You can even put your card on file in case you decide mid-flight to splurge on a local wine or beer. Get your drink without pulling out your card. Now that's the perfect blend of convenience, safety, and temptation. Those are the thoughtful details that make me choose Alaska Airlines every time I fly domestically. When you're ready to travel, rest easy, because Alaska's got this. Skip the travel sites and visit alaskaair.com to book your next flight. Thank you, Alaska Airlines, for making travel smoother. And thank you for your support, Channel 253. Hi, we're back. Uh, Before Shannon and I start digging into some local issues, I'll just say this. If you appreciate these types of topics and these types of discussions, please consider becoming a Channel 253 member. It is $40 a year, $4 a month, and helps to support our ability to put these podcasts on the air. Plus, if you're a member, you will have access to the always interesting off-the-record member-only podcast and have access to our member Slack channel where the best discussions in Tacoma are taking place. Absolutely. There are some fire discussions. If you're not checking out the 253 Slack channel discussions, you are missing out. (laughs) Definitely missing out. So Shannon, let's talk about the situation that occurred. um, You know, I think uh, it must have been, it was in January. I don't know if it's been a month yet, but we had a um, situation on a Saturday night in downtown Tacoma, 6 p.m. in the evening. Um, A number of people had gathered together to watch some 
you know, I I hesitated to call it street racing because they weren't actually, you know, zooming up and down the street like, you know, Greece like me from Greece. Donut doing and general car culture shenanigans. Yeah, I think car shenanigans, you know, donut burning and other things. And 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 I don't want to make out that this isn't an issue, you know, that this is perfectly okay, acceptable downtown street behavior. I don't think most people think it it is. Um, but I also think you have to look at, you know, what's going on here, who's getting hurt and who's doing the hurting. So anyway, as and crowd- I will tell you, it is not limited to Tacoma. Right. Uh, it is clearly something that every city, Seattle, Tacoma, my small town in rural Washington, where I am right now, because of the pandemic, there is very little for teenagers and young people in their 20s to do. And as they're pushed to outside activities, car culture and car meetups seem to be back in, it's like uh, baggy jeans and apparently a middle part. It's back in on trend again. And so I can tell you that when we get done recording this podcast and I go in to get a cup of coffee, as soon as it gets dark, we're recording this on, on a Friday night, there is going to be a group of, of young folks in a parking lot and on, on a street in my hometown doing exactly the same thing. And as people who know Tacoma know, they were downtown in the pandemic on what I call like the almost the end of downtown, it, the, the portion of downtown where clearly if you keep going around the corner, you're going to pop up into the stadium district. And so not exactly, it's not a residential neighborhood. It's not exactly a high traffic area. And it's certainly not a high traffic area on a Friday evening during the pandemic. So it's, I, I think that that context is, context is important to keep in mind as well when we think about what is the harm of that. Yes. Could it, is it, is it things that can be annoying to people? Absolutely. Is it probably a lot more annoying if it's happening out in your residential neighborhood? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is it likely to be potentially more dangerous out in a residential neighborhood where people are walking and doing things versus a relatively empty downtown corridor? Absolutely. But I think it's important to kind of keep that context in mind. It's not, not street racing, not drag racing, and certainly not in an area that is a particularly, I think everybody who was down there at that point in time was down there for the purposes of being part of this group. Yes. So you have a gathering of people. There is a car activity going on. The Tacoma Police Department becomes involved. Uh, An officer in a police SUV comes right down into where the group is gathered. Now, I will tell you what did not happen. What did not happen was a police car at one end of the group and another police car at the other end of the group. You did not have a police car at 9th and and at 7th blocking the street. You did not have officers get out of their vehicles walking down the street issuing tickets to the drivers or anything like that. What you had was a driver who came upon the group, an officer. Um, the car was on, but stationary for a period of time. The crowd gathered around the car, probably did begin to, you know, rumble on the car, knock on the car, hit on the car. The police did not turn their sirens on. They did have their lights on. And at some point, the officer, instead of slowly backing up, instead of turning his siren on, he decided to rev his engine, drive forward, and drive over people. We had several individuals go to the hospital with injuries because of this. So, you know, yes, I'll say there is potential harm in this street car activity, but no harm resulted from that activity. There is potential, there's potential harm from the police crowd activity, and there was actual harm as a result of the police action impacting the crowd. So what are the laws and issues that you see here? I think the first question is use of force and use of deadly force. Washington, just like every other state, has a law associated how you with how you or I could act to use deadly force to protect ourselves or protect others. 
And then there's a standard that law enforcement officers are held to, which in Washington used to be incredibly high, where you'd have to demonstrate actual malice. So we'll get to why I think that actual malice would have been met in this instance regardless. But now it's changed a little bit, but there's still a standard where you, before you're able to employ deadly force, you have to reasonably believe that your life or the life of someone else is in jeopardy. And that's that's just a, a straightforward legal standard. So to me, that's the most important question, not whether a car made an illegal left turn or ran a light or if people were jaywalking. Those are all things that could be subject to citation, right? Like if you jaywalk, you might get a citation for jaywalking, but you certainly don't typically find yourself being subject to deadly force for that. And that's because we want for anyone to use deadly force, including law enforcement, only as a last resort and only when it's legally appropriate to do so. So from a baseline, my first question is, was this officer using force? Absolutely. Driving a police SUV that has light bars, roll cages, is at probably six to seven thousand pounds in an aggressive manner is a use of force just like deploying a taser or a baton or firing a firearm at somebody so i see yes it's a use of force and then the next question is was it a use of deadly force and for me the answer is again yes because if you hit somebody with a car when you've either backed up and revved your engine or revved your engine and pulled forward with enough intentionality to force people to the ground or up and over your car, you are engaging in force that you know could result in death. And so for me, my first and immediate reaction to that is this is not an appropriate use of force and not an appropriate use of deadly force. And I would hope that we can all agree that any of the conduct that has been pointed out as having going on, whether it's doing donuts in the street or making an illegal turn or jaywalking, those are not death penalty offenses. In fact, as we've talked about, Washington no longer has a death penalty because our death penalty has been struck down as unconstitutional in how it was applied. So I, I would hope that we can all agree that no matter what else happened and whether or not people engaged in minor infractions of law or engaged in conduct that would result in them being cited, nobody engaged in something that would warrant death. I think that's a really important point because a lot of the, you know, on social media, as this story has been, has unfolded, you will get quite a few people who will just say, you know, if you don't want to get hurt, don't stand in the street. And well, I, I got to tell you, I've stood in the street on many occasions, including at things like the farmer's market or during when the Tacoma teachers were on strike and people kind of spilled out into the road. Nobody was that lawful. No. Was that a death penalty offense? No. Did it justify law enforcement use of force? No. So if we attributed that standard, then nobody should ever, ever, ever step off a sidewalk because that's punishable by immediate death. Well, and this is, I think, the caution that people need to employ, that when they are saying, basically what they're saying is anytime you do anything that is either a violation of any law or regulation, no matter how minor, you can be killed. I think they're also saying, Anytime the police decide that you are engaging in a behavior that is a violation of a rule or a law, you can be killed. I mean, that's some really deep totalitarian shit, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a government system that I even the people who espouse you shouldn't be on the street. You know, they don't espouse to that. Those are the same people who are using the Gadsden don't step on me flag. Mm-hmm. So, um, so don't tread on me, whatever the flag is. It's a, it's that weird balance of 
being about personal liberty and individual choices unless your personal liberty and individual choices seem dumb to me, at which point you should be killed. Yeah. And I, one of the things that's happening in that discussion, in this discussion also is that the officer involved is uh, Asian. And so the police union anyway, seems to be offering up this idea that this cannot be a situation where you have a um, racial factor or a disproportionate impact or any concerns about um, inappropriate police reaction to the crowd because the officer is himself a member of a protected class. And, you know, that's not how this works. That, in fact, yes, very simply, that's not how it works. And also, I think what's telling is I don't know how many folks uh, watched the subsequent or participated in the subsequent Tacoma City Council meetings, but uh, the officer's son is is a young man who's been very involved in uh, activism locally, nationally, graduate of Tacoma Public Schools, and he spoke out condemning his father's actions. And so simply because you are a member of a protected class does not mean that you are, in fact, incapable of engaging in discrimination and whether that be against individuals of other races or uh, discrimination based upon gender or other characteristics, simply being a member of another protected class does not mean that you are legally incapable of engaging in discrimination. I'm a woman. I am a woman who is over the age of 40. That makes me a member of two protected classes. Does that mean I get a free reign to discriminate against other women and other women under the over the age of 40? No. Does this allow me to discriminate against anybody else? No. Um, so to me, that's a real that's an argument that really is superficial. It's shallow. And frankly, I find it to be offensive to make the simplistic argument that if you happen to be of uh, you, if you happen to be of a, a race that is presently a minority race, you are therefore automatically incapable of having uh, malintent based on race. And I, I think that uh, that argument just, it, it is just one of those arguments that is so bad and so legally wrong that it just needs to not be made. So I think some of the things that we can say about this situation is um, there are there are laws and rules against the street racing, street donuts, um, any sort of um, lack of caution in use of a vehicle, um, negligence, all kinds of things. Um, was that what was going on? I mean, was that, uh, from what you've seen, what was happening? We have a police officer who is merely engaged in law enforcement activity? No, no, no. Uh, you saw, if you watched enough of the videos like I did, which I know you did, but if people watch enough of the videos, you'll see a fire truck had gone through the intersection. There was no eminent harm or danger or anything going on at that moment in time that seemed to be causing anybody any issue. And frankly, I don't even know if anyone had called law enforcement to come to that intersection as opposed to somebody being on patrol and seeing it. I don't know the details of exactly how it is that that particular officer came to be there, but he's also seeing a pretty sizable crowd, right? Even if they're just cheering on other people doing donuts. It's a pretty, pretty big crowd. You have lots of choices as a law enforcement officer and how you respond to that circumstance. You can call for backup. You can do, you can get out of your car and engage with the members of the community in a way that is you feel is safe for you and also that they feel is safe for them. I don't think driving into the crowd, revving your engine, and then reacting poorly when people start start banging their hands on, on the hood is, is an appropriate response by law enforcement either, right? 
people wouldn't have been banging on the hood of his car if he hadn't driven in a, into a crowd to start with. So I saw a lot of other choices that this officer could have and should have made, particularly now knowing that he's almost a 30-year officer. And so he was a very experienced officer. And I could see a number of different choices that he could have made along the way that would have not escalated a situation to one that involved deadly force. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that concerned me, I also listened to the 911 audio. Um, There was an immediate recognition that somebody was, somebody or bodies were injured. And the first, one of the very first questions the dispatcher asked is if the person who was hit was another officer. Why should that matter? Why is that the question that the dispatcher was asking? Right. Why, why does it matter who's injured? If you're dealing with a circumstance of a police officer running a car into a crowd and people becoming injured, do, do we only respond? Do, does law enforcement only respond in a particular way for other law enforcement officers? Does that sometimes cause harm? Absolutely. How many times have we seen uh, innocent citizens get killed when officers are uh, engaged in a high-speed attempt to get to someplace else where another officer has requested immediate help. And, which is, again, not to say that there are not, like, I certainly want law enforcement officers who are in truly dangerous situations to get the help they receive in a speedy manner. But at the same time, why are we valuing the lives of law enforcement differently than citizens to the point where the dispatcher plainly asks over the radio, is the person who's down a police officer? That, that concerns me. And that, that causes me to really question the thought process of our police department and of those who are in civilian roles who support our police department, where there is a separation of the value of life And why is it that the question is immediately, is it an officer down or is it a citizen down? Mm -hmm. Well, and this is why I think we circulate back to this question of rules and risks and choices. So we have a situation where whether there was a risk of harm in the street activity, that risk of harm uh, escalated enormously once the police became involved. So you have a... um, something that is supposed to be a positive, the involvement of law enforcement officers, that becomes a negative for any number of reasons. You have a situation where the the entity that is that we, in our law, but also in our society, expect and get, have a duty to protect, and that is the law enforcement officer had a duty to protect the people around him. He owed that duty to the people around him. Um, that duty was not upheld. People were placed at risk because of his actions. Are there biases and assumptions that were in play? Yeah, we do think there there are. We have statements from at least the police guild indicating that the officer thought that he was at risk of harm, that he was in fear for his life, even though he was inside a reinforced vehicle with extra safety and everything All right, Ellen, else. This is where I'm just going to have to be terrible and bulldoze and hop in. It can't be the constant refrain that the the go-to card is, I was afraid. If you're that afraid, you're in the wrong job. You're in the wrong job. You're in the wrong job. If, if you cannot interact with the community that you are supposed to be protecting and serving, you are in the wrong job. And if you've been doing this for 30 years and you believed that that circumstance was one that posed your life to be in danger, you're in the wrong job. And I would add to that that if you have a standard, and we no longer have that, that that is the only standard, but if you have a standard where someone can engage in the use of deadly force, potentially kill someone, and be excused for it simply by saying, I was in fear for my life, you don't have any standards at all. Right. Absolutely. And, and well, I didn't intend to cause harm. But my question is, were you behaving recklessly? Were you engaging in something that we would consider to be gross negligence or vehicular assault if it was anyone else? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The last bit that I wanted to talk to today, and I think we're going to continue this conversation next week, but when you have something like this happen in your city, in your town, in your county, what can we expect of our elected leaders? In this case, 
they all, almost all of them had some difficulty trying to figure out what to say, when to say it, how to say it, which I don't actually blame them for personally. To me, that reveals that there's a, a real disconnect between um, what the city is saying to its leadership in terms of what their role is when there is an um, extreme action. But, you know, we elect people to make decisions for us. We elect people to stand up for us. And, you know, we hold them accountable through the election process. And in this case, we have people who have not been able to articulate what is the standard? What is the standard that I expect for anyone engaged in, I'll say law enforcement, but even official activity on behalf of the city of Tacoma? We have um, worries, I think, about risks where they're afraid that if they say the wrong thing, it could lead to some sort of liability for the city. And so we have choices being made where the residents are left without any leadership and are, are simply drawing their own conclusions or maybe listening to podcasts where we have lots of opinions. But how, how does the elected leadership, you know, what is their responsibility in situations like this? What should we be seeing them doing that kind of factors into, you know, is this a good law? Do we need a law? Who's doing the enforcement? What's going on here? What happened? And, you know, what should be said? All of those things, all of those questions, they have to be, we have to be asked. We elect individuals to lead. And I think that Tacoma has found itself in the peculiarly and particularly in a very strange circumstance where we elect bold, dynamic folks to office. And then they have had it drummed into them that any level of bold, decisive leadership or speaking out on an issue is impermissible or is going to harm the city. Therefore, they should say nothing. And I also think that they are not being given the information they need to lead in a timely manner and that they're not being provided with information transparently, which is not to lay the blame at the feet of current uh, acting police chief Aiki. I think that really the, the issue about information and transparency of information arose under the end of his predecessor's time as it relates to the information and withholding of information related to the death of Manny Ellis from the mayor and the council. So I'm going to kind of shift into two things. The first is uh, the ability for leaders to speak out on a public situation there are lots of ways in which leaders can show empathy and, and express outrage at events without exposing the city to liability or without there being some potential that somebody will say something that comes back to harm the city. And you only need to look as far up I-5 as Seattle to see that happen, right? We saw during the protests last summer Seattle City Council members, King County Council members coming out to protest events and speaking out, including from the protest events themselves and being public about their displeasure of the actions of the Seattle Police Department and in some instances, the actions of the mayor. And they, they're, there's no magic secret sauce to why they did that. They did that because that's their jobs as, as the elected leaders. And, you know, Lorena Gonzalez, who's the current council president in Seattle, is a very talented lawyer who, who understands what she can and can't do legally. And so to me, this whole concept of we can't possibly say anything because it might become a conflict of interest or look like the city has predetermined something is been drummed into the Tacoma City Council in such a bizarre way. And I think it's important to separate out who makes employment decisions versus who makes leadership decisions, right? It's not a circumstance where the council oversees challenges to maybe the termination of an officer after an investigation. 
that goes through arbitration. There, there are civil service boards. There are all of these things that keep this elected city council separate from that process. So it's not like if the city council speaks out about what happens, that they're somehow t- preventing that officer from having due process by going through the challenge to any discipline he may get in the future, because there's an identified process for that that doesn't necessarily come back to the council. And in fact, in this instance, doesn't. So I, that kind of puzzles me. And I always, when I used to work for school boards or other entities, we always made sure to have a fine line about, okay, is this something that is reviewable by the board as opposed to it's going to go to third-party arbitration so that the board, if the board has feelings about it, they can speak about it knowing it's not going to be coming back to them as it relates to a specific individual challenging, for example, losing their job. So that to me, and I don't know where it comes from other than to look back to what I really see as a defining moment in Tacoma politics. And those are the events around the hiring and retention of police chief frame and the protection given to him by the then city manager that ultimately cost the city a tremendous amount, a, a tre- cost the city tremendously when Chief Bray murdered his the mother of his children and his former wife. And I think that that set a bizarre tone for the city moving forward that we just don't talk about things where it should have been the opposite, right? That was a circumstance where people knew that they had a bad actor in a role that had tremendous importance and nobody took action and, other than to protect that person. And that, to me, should be the point where the city's leadership and elected officials learn that they need to engage in greater oversight of the city manager and greater oversight of the day-to-day workings of the city in order to understand what's going on and to do their job as elected officials. I think I've fully been... Uh, completely moved into the camp of Tacoma needs a strong elected mayor instead of a city manager based on the course of events of the last few years, which is not necessarily personalized to the current city manager other than we have a circumstance where the city manager is the former city attorney and she appears to be still leading the city from the perspective of being a defense attorney and being worried about risk management and liability over leadership. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I knew as an attorney who also was a risk manager was my job was to tell the leaders what the risks were and their job was to lead and make the decisions. And I worked with some really fantastic, very brave leaders who knew that I was telling them what the risks were, but then it was their job to make the correct leadership decision knowing what the risks are. And I think that the city of Tacoma has been paralyzed by this idea of risk management overweighing and fear of litigation overcoming all things to the point where I think that it actually has created liability for the city where the city is aware of actions, should be aware of actions and is not taking reasonable steps to stop them because they've been told they can't do so without creating risk exposure when that's just flat wrong. Right. So let me wind us back to where we started the question that Downtown on the Go was asking was, can street safety be anti-racist and how? And the answer is, well, you have to engage in very affirmative and thoughtful decision-making practices. Making decisions, making good decisions is the most important role of elected leaders. I'd say it's the most important role of government, but certainly for elected leaders. It requires a process of rigorous review and thought. You can't just say, make that law, make that law, make that law. You can't just default to the police enforcing all of your social interaction rules. You have to be thoughtful. So I ask myself, do our leaders have those skills? I don't know. But that's what we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the need to develop a framework for really good decision making. So any final thoughts, Shannon, before I let you go tonight? I think that I I can't wait to keep the conversation going. And I think that 
If anything, I challenge folks to spend the time between now and our next episode really thinking about what is the value of this law? Why does this law exist? And how does how is it being enforced in a way that either aligns with that law or acts contrary to that law? Because I think when you approach things with that lens, it helps decide what is really important and what we should let go of. Okay. And we'll talk about that more in our next episode. Thank you very much, Shannon. I really appreciate all of your expertise and thoughts in this area. Happy to be here. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.